Support for this episode of Be Real is brought to you by Walt Disney Studios presenting The Lion King. Critics have called it breathtaking, stunningly beautiful, and a majestically dazzling visual triumph. Disney's The Lion King, for your consideration. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Pfeiffer, And I'm Noah Ballard. Ever since I can remember, I've been wanting to introduce you on this podcast. Really? Yeah. Yeah. What what would my like mob name be if you had to be like and this oh. is Noah the Nichols Ballard or yeah. something? Or... <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, as the camera pans past you at a bar. I was literally named after a gambling concept and my dad is coming up on this episode. But before we get too insular, we're gonna talk about the crime epics of one Marty Scorsese. Ten hours of capital C cinema. Uh, I'm just kidding. I don't want to get into that. Um, (laughs) First off, we're going to read Martin Scorsese's piece in the New York times. Yeah. Word by word. And then what, and then we're going to annotate it. No, but we're going to talk about uh, the Irishman, of course, freshly out casino and Goodfellas. It's basically like the Marty Pesci Bobby movies. Let's see how right. familiar we can get over the course of the next hour and change. The Marty Pesci Bobby movies. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure someone in that crew calls them that. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's pretty fair to say at the top that all these movies are more or less indistinguishable. <laughs> I don't think that's true, but of course I know what you mean. There's definitely a lot of scenes where two guys argue about something and then one guy thinks they land on one thing and the other guy knows that that guy's going to get murdered in the next scene. I really like the way watched together, especially with the Irishman, they really function as this kind of shadow history of the 20th century. Like Eisenhower built the interstates so the Joe Pesci character and the Irishman could own them. Or like the Great Depression and World War II galvanized unions um, but underneath that, there's this pit of unaccounted for money. Um, and you can basically just kind of, yeah, you can read the whole 1950 to 2000 by way of this this underbelly history. They're also, yeah, they're pretty interesting cultural histories, too, considering just like the time period you and I are currently living through. And we're like, we have to go back to when America was like... You know, everyone did their things by the book. And then if you kind of go back, it's like, no, uh, the 20th century was riddled with organized corruption. Sure. And this is like nothing. Did you have any moments, especially watching The Irishman, where the way that Joe Pesci speaks is a lot, uh, is very similar to the way Donald Trump speaks? Where he like thinks of like these little names for people that are like more or less insulting. And then he'll only speak in... Like, absolute yeses or nos. But will ultimately say nothing. I mean... You don't have to I agree th- with me. That's just I, where I'm coming from. I know what you're saying, though. But, I mean, I think that uh, DJT certainly models himself after the kind of power brokerism of, like, these guys. These fucking guys. Just with with uh, 
the sh- most shameless branding, right? Um, yeah, there's a great moment to, to, to play on your point. There's a great moment in Casino at, where De Niro is kind of lamenting the next generation of corporations. And he's like, how did they do it? Where'd their money come from? If not the Teamsters Pension Union? Junk bonds. And you realize, that there, yeah, there are just like these entanglements of... Uh, corruption both subterranean and aerial throughout this entire like retelling of history yeah it's all stuff you know about and that's like maybe what's super sobering about watching the irishman uh and these other two movies is i guess when i first encountered these movies and really like the scorsese oeuvre uh when i was younger a younger more impressionable film goer uh yeah and you kind of like feel for these guys, but it's hard, I think, in 2019 to like really f- like buy into their toxic, like, to- just the most toxic masculinity that leads to the most outrageous acts of violence. And then also the fact that like none of these guys pay taxes and are happy about that. <laughs> yeah, but I think the Irishman is reckoning with that. That's like the whole, I think the last thing Marty has to say about like why I made these movies. It's a thematic trilogy. And I, I mean, I'll say at the top, like, I think if you like, you know, grab a 17 year old off the street and are like, would you go in and see the Irishman please? And they're like, okay, I have, I think they would have zero idea like what to make of it or why you made them watch it or why it was so long. But as a capstone to this group of movies, that's where all the life is breathed into it. In my opinion. I guess. Um, but I think much like the 17 year old, like I didn't quite clock this movie or what it was doing, but then could only understand it by watching another seven hours for the cinema. Uh, let's talk about the Irishman in greater detail. Shall let's we? do it. It's over. They're all gone. Frank, it's time. It's time you say what happened. Frank, I want you to meet my cousin, Russell Buffalino. Better watch, there's a lot of tough guys around here. Did he tell you? You're not afraid of tough guys, are you? I didn't think so. I was one of a thousand working stiffs until I wasn't no more. You got a good friend here. You don't know how good a friend you got. Russell, he took a shine to me right away. After a while, he started giving me little things to do. I know you read a lot of things about me. I just want to say I'm sorry. I know I wasn't a good dad. I know that. I know that. I was just trying to protect all of you. From what? You didn't see what I see, what I've been through. So... The Irishman has been in select theaters for a couple weeks, and it arrives on Netflix this week, daring you to use the pause button on its three-and-a-half-hour runtime. But I was frankly glad I got to see it in a theater, one, because it's a Martin Scorsese movie that benefits from being seen in theaters, and two, because you can't walk away. Like, you have to let it, you have to let it do its thing. I have to say it did not feel three-and-a-half hours long. But yeah, it's definitely long. You should definitely go to the, if you see it in theaters, go to the bathroom like two or three times before you even get into the theatrical trailers. Go to the bathroom two or three times before the movie starts? Is that what you're oh, yeah, suggesting? Yeah. <laughs> Just like stay in the bathroom up until the lights fade down halfway. 
interesting understanding of physiology. Um, so The Irishman is a movie about Frank Sheeran, who is this hired muscle who ends up intersecting with organized crime and the Teamsters uh, in the post-war era. He, Frank is played by Robert De Niro. The movie opens on three different timelines, right? One, he is telling his story to someone you do not see in a nursing home. One, at like maybe age 60, he and the Joe Pesci character, Russell Buffalino, are taking a, like a road trip through the Ohio River Valley up to Detroit. You don't know why. And then we basically flash back to the start of his journey in these crimes as he is, uh, he is a truck driver. He is a teamster um, who is slowly kind of increasingly breaks laws by selling steak out of the back of his truck to a small time gangster played by Bobby Cannavale and becomes more and more involved in, uh, in the seedy underbelly as Russell. What is your impression of Russell's role? I called him a power broker earlier, but isn't that kind of what he is? He's just like a, he's just the tendrils that connect mob bosses to union leaders to small time crooks. Yeah, I mean he's kind of got the that Pennsylvania rusty corridor locked down in terms of like who's in charge. Oh yeah, and it's anything, a Philly movie at the beginning. Right? It's a Philly movie. It's actually very little a New York movie. It's mostly Philly, Detroit, and Washington D.C. Then you see history play out with these time jumps as Frank eventually comes into the service of James P. Hoffa, the famed leader of the Teamsters in the mid-20th century, played by Al Pacino. And... Wow! Okay. (laughs) There it was. That was obligatory, I think. That was one. Um, Yeah, (laughs) first of many, I hope. Um, These Kennedys! and, And yeah, without... You know what hap- you know what happens, or rather, you know what you don't know what happens to Jimmy Hoffa, right? So we move through history uh, as as we get closer to to that disappearance, and uh, we reckon with some de aging. We see this. Oh my god! We I... see this. We'll talk about it in a second. Hold on. We see this. Uh, eventually, an old man reckon with like the life of organized crime that he's lived, which is the part that really feels like a Scorsese capstone, for sure. And I think this movie could have been, frankly, more of that. It's tough. If we are considering these as kind of a you know faux trilogy, yes. then like, why do the worst version of a young man getting into crime we've seen yet, when the whole point is the more elegic, somber, kind of doddering well, mea culpa? The best fucking part of Goodfellas is the fact that you... It's this like the surprise transition from this like sort of charming, attractive teenager who gets like thrown in with these guys, and then it's suddenly Ray Liotta at this table. Yeah, like this movie should have realized that like if you want to make this compelling, like pull a jump like that where you get to know someone through their their aging, and that's by good casting, not by this absolutely ridiculous de-aging process so basically you have three timelines one where de niro looks like he's about a thousand years old which is the the present more or less it's 2003 then you have yes him riding in the car with joe pesci where they look like they're 80 
And then they're calling each other kid and they still look like they're 60 with like bad wigs on. You mean when they first meet? When they first meet over like the broken truck. It's like, here are two 60-year-old men like at the prime of their lives. And it doesn't make any, it doesn't make a lick of sense. I think that, so I don't want to be too much of like carping assholes about this but it has a few very yes negative effects on the movie the stuff when they're 40 is like undeniably bad looking because you (laughs) cannot no matter how good the cgi is you cannot unstiffen the neck of an 80 year old you can't make them not all hunching over because they're all like riddled um with arthritis like you know the kind of like receding lip de niro mask like if you ask me to make a de niro face i'm gonna go like (laughs) <laughs> you're gonna stretch your face yeah. as far as possible up and your i'm skull. gonna put my lips inside my mouth um <laughs> if you watch him in goodfellas you know what actors get a lot of mileage out of is the shape of their mouths um, sure. playing jimmy conway in goodfellas he de niro licks his lips when he thinks about murdering maury he twists right. them when he is nervous about how the lutanza heist is gonna go in this movie you can't make his lips come back onto his face and be more dexterous it's just well, like these people they don't look the way that Mar- that uh de niro pacino and pesci looked when they were yeah. 40 and that's that's the problem that's my biggest issue with like all of this technology is like i know what they looked like yeah we it's not know. like we haven't seen these people people as younger men like we grew up on them as younger men yeah and so they're just hunched over like weird cartoon versions of themselves it's strange it's very strange why not just well a why did you cast all of these old weird men and b if you did cast them why not just double cast them to be charitable if i i think like what he's trying to do is like okay if this movie is in some sense the denouement of this whole genre that's like more self-aware and interesting about like what happens when you outlive all the bastards that you came up around. Um, I think it is important to an extent to like keep the signifiers in place. Like, don't you think the whole movie just could have been the road trip and then they wouldn't have had to use all this de-aging material and it could be like whether or not Jimmy's going to show up to this thing and like play with the tension of like, oh, we drove and we saw his car early and everything and then you got the stepson in the mix too. But I just didn't find... I do. Because that's the meat of this story and mm-hmm. i don't know if i found that and then like the lead up to the inevitable murder scene climax uh i didn't feel that much tension there yeah i mean it is a movie about the way that time piles up and you lose track of it speaking from the perspectives of old characters i think in some ways you need to feel that i really liked the idea that at the end of the movie frank he doesn't know that it's Christmas. Like he just doesn't know what week it is or what month it is. But like one way in which he, he keeps trap one way in which he keeps track of time is that like, oh, the bosses haven't been happy since Castro. And like when you get to that age, like you can mark time in this like almost like epoch wide ways of like it hasn't been happy since Castro. That was fifty years ago, but like I also don't know that it's Christmas. That fallibility with time is interesting. I love, too, that, I mean, not to spoil it, but presumably you've seen this movie if you're listening to this podcast. 
I loved at the end where the FBI guys were like, you know, all these people are dead, right? And right. in fact, you've chronicled their deaths. So like, <laughs> who are you protecting? And that sort of is one of the bigger questions, I think, of the movie is like, who is it protecting? Because it's the first thing that we've seen really on screen that really posits what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. Like Hoffa, the movie, have you seen that? I have a long time ago. The, it's, it's a little bit vaguer, like Nicholson. how, like what happens yeah. to him. Yeah, um, yeah. In some ways, this movie. Once I realized that it was leading up to Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance, it kind of reminded me of um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. To be frank, which is like you're gonna see an imagined you can be Frank. I can be Jimmy. Hey there. Uh, you're gonna see an imagined version of this like american fantasy that every like everybody morbidly kind of like wants to see like you know the subject that the original subject of true crime stuff manson and hoffa that is i think one of the stronger things about the movie that it should have leaned into instead of like trying to give us this like weird because like that moment is an interesting historical moment to play with but i don't think that moments like the kennedy assassination or anything or like casting um jack houston as rfk to be in two shots like why does that why did that have to happen? The whole cast of Boardwalk Empire is in this movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the way this plays out, Scorsese and the Steve's Alien script, I guess we should say, treats the Hoffa plotline like it's the fall of Caesar. You are basically wallowing in the twenty opportunities that he could have had to save himself. Leading up to, I think, Pesci's best work of the movie where he's been sort of, you know, nothing but gregarious and honorable to his friends. And he just gives that kind of cold, like, we did all we could for the man. And you know it's done. The other smart thing about this movie is it knows, it really wants you to realize how gangster euphemism works. Like, if somebody says a little concern, the bosses are a little concerned, that means somebody's going to die. So we did all we could for the man is nailing a death note on his door. Do you think these movies are saved or ultimately handicapped by the insistence on the voiceover narration? It depends how it's used. Yeah, sometimes I feel like the only thing holding a lot of the montages together, especially in Casino and this one, were the or was the voiceover. Like otherwise, it would have been incoherent. This is spoiling my Goodfellas point, but the, it works so much better in Goodfellas because the voiceover is so much more oriented toward the character and not just events. For um, sure. Casino probably suffers the most from that. This movie might do a little bit better. Uh, very chilling in the voiceover is lines like, um, it's a bad looking scene. You've already made fun of it to me over text, but where De Niro's in the war on the Italian front. Oh my God. <laughs> That's where he's supposed to be like, 28 or something but he has the Still moment 70. of killing the italian soldiers and taking note of their of their uh you know their optimism in that moment like if the man who does who's digging his own grave he looks at you like if i do a good enough job the guy holding the gun will change his mind and therein sort of lies a cruel truth about all three of these movies which is there's really no such thing as keeping your head down when it's incumbent on the people who have power to just squeeze harder whenever they want so Absolutely. there are really good script moments that end up in voiceover like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a good tool to point out the fatalism of it all. I do, though, think that this one kind of like takes the wind out of its own sails by every time it like introduces a tertiary character, it's like, and then they died 10 years later from like multiple gunshot wounds. 
Because, like, it takes away... But I guess if it's so predictable, and I guess the joke of the movie is that, like, everybody other than him is dead. Yes, yeah, the senior uh, citizen version of Goodfellas. Right. But I don't... Is that interesting? I think it's interesting with these three movies. Sure. Let's talk about the performances. Please. I think Pesci is incredible. He's really good. He's good at like, and especially he's good compared to all the uh, the others, the other two movies, because like he knows when to like shut his mouth in a scary way. Like in that scene where Keitel's calling out uh, De Niro for picking up the laundromat explosion job. Oh yeah. Pesci doesn't say a fucking thing, but Pesci's clearly the one who's made it happen that De Niro wasn't just killed for making this mistake. Right. Which is to- a totally different look from Tommy DeVito and Nicky Santoro. Absolutely. And like a one that makes it feel like he's the one who's working the hardest here to not just play the the Scorsese typecast. Sure. And it's an easy answer, but it's also exhilarating to see him because we haven't seen him in 15 years. Yeah. In in a very real way because you've seen him die in other Scorsese movies and he's now like an 80-year-old man who doesn't act anymore. Seeing him on screen feels like a resurrection of sorts, which is like and I he looks this guy totally was gone. different. He's like very gaunt, he's very like sort of thin. Yeah. And he's got yeah, he's scary in a whole another way now because of and just the way he speaks is so precise. Mm-hmm. You know, they're sitting there at the Howard Johnson, he's like you're getting on a plane. You're going yep. to Detroit. Yep. You're doing that thing and then you're coming back. It's decided. And like, that's it. And De Niro has all these questions and he like cannot help him. No. The soft power communicated in a conversation with violence underneath is amazing. Um, De Niro, I think, has some incredible moments that are rather late blooming in the film. Um when he gets on the phone with Jimmy Hoffa's wife and just starts spouting off like, you got to think positively about this. You got to try to, it's going to be okay. And he just keeps repeating. That's when the sort of like the, the feeling of like, has this been a doddering grandpa movie? Like come back, comes back to bite because like maybe grandpa daughters cause he's trying to cover up the fact that, you know, he hates himself and he hates what he's done. And those are the moments where De Niro really shines at the end. The lead up. I don't know that he, I don't know that he hates himself. I think that like, he's gotten a lot of satisfaction from telling himself this narrative of like, I'm doing this because I'm just a working guy and it's hard in this country for working guys to just like make an honest living. So I'll cut some corners. That's all these people. I think they are all addicted in all three of these movies to this idea of there's some sense of accomplishment having gone outside the system and like gamed it in some way. And then this movie I think is so much better than the others having like the scene with the daughter where he's like but i did the thing that was cool like uh, don't you understand and they're like dad we're terrified of you and like nobody wants to speak to you because of that and it's such a strange because he's never really sorry for it i don't think he does hate himself i think i i take back that comment with the priest too like the priest is like don't you hate yourself like don't you want forgiveness he's like no not really no you're 100 right you're 100 right and it's a great one of the great uh, what becomes kind of an Easter egg in the middle, which you're liable to forget about in a a 210 minute movie, <laughs> is um, 
the daughter Peggy, who's later played by Anna Paquin, just like will not warm up to Uncle Joe Pesci. Right? He's like, "Oh, come <laughs> here, baby. Like, I'll give you a Christmas you want gift. Some candy? I'll, I'll give you a stack of money." She just doesn't trust him, which is the kind of like nugget that would never be in some of like the whiz bang of the other two movies but it's like of course she doesn't trust him like children have a preternatural sense about like untrustworthy people i was disappointed that they didn't try to turn anna paquin into a four-year-old at one point <laughs> using their their youth technology here one of the downsides of the de-aging here is that it's so hard to tell like frankly who are the daughters and who are the wives oh for and, sure like one of the things that is of course not gotten back through de-aging is a kind of sexual chemistry like the idea that you know 80 year old de niro de-aged like wins over this waitress 40 years his junior and is just like and that was when i left my wife with a new sexy woman and it's like there's no there are zero scene i get that there shouldn't be any talking because he's an unreachable iceberg of a man but there's no scenes <laughs> where right. like men and women communicate i don't know the whole thing if you can't tell from the tone of my argument and voice uh left me very uneasy if we kind of push toward a rating here and to describe our rating system for the uninitiated we've got the first half which is kind of our assessment of technical quality literary merit cinematic merit if you will and the second which is entertainment value more subjective rewatchability um i think you could compile a mountain of evidence that this is a first good because of the thematic resonances we're talking about because of the way that it fits in with the other two um I just don't know if the second good is like salvageable at all. And we haven't even talked about Pacino. Um, here's my theory on Pacino. Please. I think so. It's Alec Baldwin does a good impression of Pacino. And he has a theory that post scent of a woman, post hua Pacino, he's actually started <laughs> doing like a rooster Cogburn thing. Like he, uh, <laughs> like he's become Southern all of a sudden. Uh. Um, I think that he has sort of developed a kind of synesthesia where when he reads the letter O in a script, he's like, well, O is like A flat, right? So whenever he, if any time he, he says a word with the letter O in it, he like spirals it upward into some kind of rainbow. It's like, I don't care what you do. It's like, it just <laughs> flies around. It's like, that's not what language are you speaking out? That's that's the thing too, because he pronounces the word solidarity, solidarity, solidarity. <laughs> Say yeah. it with me now, solidarity. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, that's a good point. It's he's such. I mean, he's Pacino, such a ham, and the movie <laughs> he in, is in, such a ham. And in part, it works because you, Jimmy Hoffa is this guy who's trying to like wield power by being incredibly charismatic sure um, and so those scenes are all right and i kind of i like the scenes too that juxtapose the fact that he and frank are speaking different languages like the scene where he has all the union bosses come into his office and it's like you guys are, <laughs> are just like you know inconsolably bad at your jobs and frank leaves and he's and he's like chases him down and he's like what happened? And he's like, you can't talk to me like that. You you can't, you call me a dickhead. He's like, 
I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so good. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying over here. Uh, not as hard as Al, though. Uh, and they're, they're kind of like drawn together, right? By Frank in some ways does like the idea that he gets to be so close to this man who's like nothing like the other men he encounters in his life. It's a pleasure to be like a, a worker and a pleaser to Jimmy Hoffa. Um, but is it like a great performance? I don't know. I don't think so. Do we want to rate this movie? Say our final words. Do we got more? Yeah, I mean, I see the the continuity here having watched all three of these and that maybe gives it some resonance, but like having not watched the first two until after watching the Irishman, I don't know that it was like that much fun. And I don't, I think it's like the before midnight of this trilogy. And I think that it's kind of the, the special effects just like make it kind of bad, like kind of goofy. They bothered you throughout. They did. It bothered me throughout that it's like clearly these seventy-five-year-old men who don't look anything like like they looked when they were actually this age, which we have record of. Which I then watched. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I think I'm sorry to say it. It might be bad. Bad. Oh boy, contrarian. (laughs) Is that no no the killer over there? Um, Yeah. So Noah no knows. Noah no knows. That's pretty good. <laughs> um I the de-aging is fun to make fun of. I think that once we made it to the point that Robert and Pesci were playing 60-year-olds, I thought it looked fine. The beginning is cringeworthy. Um I think to me this is a pretty easy good bad. I mean, the still of the night being used over and over again from a director who has had such incredible curatorial skills of pop and rock music to just like come back to this like doo-wop song about you know being alone in the tranquil void of the night um also we didn't it opens with a nursing home tracking shot that is mimicking the copacabana tracking shot it's all commentary on his personal suite as filmmakers over the age of 75 are want to make and as that i think it has a lot of value as I said, as a movie to walk in cold, I I think there's so much that doesn't make sense if you aren't watching it the way we're watching it. So, good, bad. All right. So, let's go back to the year 1995 and Casino. Uh, the year was 1995. Yes. So, this is a movie based on another Nick Pileggi book who co-wrote the screenplays of both casino and goodfellas uh fun fact though the book actually came out after the movie did it really i mean he wrote it during the production of the movie but they came out actually the movie first and then the book like weeks after i do infer that so much of the structural similarities between the movie is attributable to the material that pelleggi generates which is just insurmountable levels of detail there are so many good details in casino i mean i think we're probably going to say some pretty critical things about casino but there are 
50 to 100 great bits and anecdotes in it. Like, that is both the strength of the movie and not quite knowing how to organize them or when to pepper them in might be one of its bigger weaknesses. Sure. Um, And I think its loyalty to the success of Goodfellas is both nonsensical and sort of wholly misplaced. Mm. Um, Okay, so the story of this movie is that uh, Sam Ace Rothstein is a otherworldly successful NFL handicapper who is put in charge of the Tangiers Casino in the year 1970, uh, based on the real-life Stardust, which you'll hear my father talk about coming up. Um, And it's a mob-owned casino paid for with dirty money from the Teamsters. (laughs) Yeah, as we know from the Irishman, dirty loans from the Teamsters Union. The movie sort of proceeds to explain the beginnings and ends of this one era in Las Vegas as seen through uh, Sam Rothstein and Nikki Santoro, who's played by Joe Pesci. Rothstein is De Niro, if I didn't say that. Sharon Stone plays Ginger, who is Ace Rothstein's wife. And this movie seeks to explain a lot. It seeks to explain Las Vegas to you, which I think in much more so than... Uh, being a foot soldier in the mob life is not something that you need explained in quite the same way, which I think is another one of its maybe creation right. flaws. Well, the way in which Goodfellas like tries to explain the wise guy culture to you, this one like feels the need to over and over again, as I texted you earlier, Chance, yeah. say, oh, well, back home, I would have gotten arrested for this. But in Las Vegas, they give me an award. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so here's an example of like something that's illegal everywhere else, you being good at it. Okay, here's another example of something that's illegal and like you're good at it. I was a hell of a handicapper, I can tell you that. I had it down so good that I ran paradise on earth. I had one of the biggest casinos in Las Vegas to run for Tangiers. No, if I did it, I'd have to run it my way. Nobody's gonna interfere with you running the casino, I guarantee it. Nicky, you're a guy. Make a lot of money for us. So keep a good eye on it. All right. Look at this place, it's made of money. What do you think about me moving out here? I just gotta tell you, it's no joke out here. You gotta keep a low profile. Right off the bat, they don't like guys like us. Oh, yeah, oh. You, you like your money a lot, yes, you? a lot. Well, how about that? Yeah. Settle down. I want a family. You got the wrong girl. You'll be set up for the rest of your life. You don't know me. What do you know me? Two, three months. They had it all. They ran the show. And it was paradise while it lasted. We wanted to make money and we weren't remotely fair about it. Got it. Okay. <laughs> right. And there's some like understanding of what like being above board means. And then, because Ace is sort of a character, I mean, again, living by a very strict code, and he understands that, like, the mob connection is a necessary evil, but at the same time, he, like, doesn't play by their, like, violent rules unless his ideas of morality are challenged, and that is, like, cheating. He doesn't stand for cheating. I think the best thing about the movie in retrospect is just the ace character the uh, this idea that 
he is ultimately a, like a stoic idealist. Like he's this guy who has made gotten to this place by being by turning gambling into a business and now he thinks he can turn other insane dirty risks into a straight business and part of what Nikki the Joe Pesci character ends up screaming at him over and over again is like we're here to steal why don't you just fucking steal um but Sam has that weird like I have no I have no illusions about any of this he keeps saying over and over again and yet like Yes, you do. You have the ultimate illusion that you can turn unexplainable things like theft and love and passion that you can translate them into something uh, tangible and respect and values based. Yeah, you can put a dollar sign on all of them. Yeah. Like he tries to figure out like the thing without what he thinks is cheating. So even like in his marriage, he's has that long conversation with Sharon Stone where he's like, well, like love is something that grows. And like, what I'm just looking for is trust. And like, love is based on a mutual respect. Love is based on a mutual respect. And like, that's such a weird thing to say to somebody, but it also like in a city defined by like what the rules are it does sort of make sense. But again, like you see by the end of the movie that it like doesn't work. Thelma Schoonmacher, the editor of all the Marty Scorsese movies, I think one of her finer moments in Casino is on the night of Sam and Ginger's wedding, the first thing we hear is the audio of Lester Diamond, played by James Woods, coming over the payphone, and you just get his audio. He's just like, can you feel me, baby? Like, do you feel me in your heart? Do you feel me inside of you? And it's like kind of his classic gross manipulative stuff. But you understand in that moment by foregrounding that voiceover that he understands something that Sam doesn't understand. He doesn't like passion. That his way, the way to keep his hooks in this woman is through romance. And Sam is just like, romance will grow out of contracts. <laughs> it's like, no, it won't, buddy. And this is precisely how you're going to get fucked. Right. Um, and then it just goes down this sort of madness rabbit hole with her. We can get into the the marriage if you want. That sure. I think is maybe the most disturbing thing about the movie. It's quite disturbing. But it's also a very violent movie, but it's also kind of a silly movie in places too. I don't know if Nikki should be allowed his own narrative his own narration in this movie. I think a very, Certainly key, not. a very key part of Goodfellas is that you don't give the mad dog his own narration. It's Henry and Karen who get to narrate. And I think that there are ways, Noah, in which I think that this movie actually has kind of like, because it was such a riff on Goodfellas, has actually kind of like superseded Goodfellas. Like when people think of Goodfellas, they actually think of Casino. And just like the excess on screen is like pretty shameless. I would say, whereas like Goodfellas, like even till the end, they, these are just like working guys. Yeah. And it's, that's, what's kind of like endearing about them maybe, but like these people are just shameless, like brand obsessed, money grubbing, whatever bad people. Nikki's like 95% id. So you just get so oversaturated by gangster attitude. He doesn't really have that many good observations. Right. And I frankly don't even feel like this is a great movie to explain, like, casino geography. Like, I think nope. that's what's good about, like, an Ocean's Eleven or something. It's like, you really feel like you know at least the lobby of um, 
the Bellagio by the end of it. This one, I was still sort of confused. Like there's the, his office and it has like the bedding stalls and things. But again, like I also wasn't really explained. It wasn't explained well enough to me. Like the, I didn't quite follow the scam, if that makes sense. Like they, I know they're taking money off the top, but like when he mentions all these like leechy side hustles that people are doing it was like and then and then and then and then and then okay fine and then we see the one montage where the guy has like the the uh morse code on his leg or whatever yeah but other than that like i felt like i didn't quite he's like and then you have to pay off this guy who's this guy's brother and this guy's brother didn't do the thing with the the machines and then the two people won a million dollars and it's like all right what I really like all his interactions with the cowboys in the room. Um, the the thing with the county commissioner in the office where the county commissioner's like, yeah, old Don is as useless as tits on a board, but like, could you please give him <laughs> a different job? And De Niro's just like, can't do it, won't do it. You understand where I'm coming from on this. And that ends, those those moments of idealism end up being his downfall. But I think the scam, I don't know, man. The scams are pretty... I think the scams in Goodfellas... I mean, I also have the same problem with the scams in The Irishman. It's like, oh, Kennedy got elected and the union was rooting for him, but he's against the main guy. And like, oh, because of, wait, why? I don't think the movie really made sense of that. And in the same way, I don't know that like this period makes sense to me. Like, I guess everyone's getting greased and like that's the that's the bottom line. And people are just dropping money there and it's every it's raining on everyone in varying degrees. And sure. then that a little bit of that rainwater is collected and taken to these mediocre Midwestern cities where all the crime bosses are hanging out. Kansas City. Of all places. Of all places. So I get, I guess it makes sense, um, it does. but I, I don't think any of them do it as well as Goodfellas does where I feel like I could join that family immediately. And right. like, I know the scores. Let me ask you a leading question. Isn't it hilarious that Todd Phillips watched Marty make fun of how bad Robert De Niro would be as a talk show host and was like, yeah, that's my talk show host for Joker. He's exactly the kind of light, congenial guy I'd want to host a late night talk show. And there's this whole scene where Ace Rothstein comes back as the entertainment director and is so painfully bad at hosting <laughs> talk He's shows. pretty bad. He juggles. Um, what's your uh, favorite scene of wanton violence? Oh, it's absolutely the guy with his head in... The head device. in the vice? Yeah. Yeah. His eyeball pops out a little yeah. bit before it cuts away. I love that part too. I also like the animatronic beat up Joe Pesci in the hole. Pretty bad. Yeah. Not great. <laughs> they should have de-aged that robot a little bit. Yeah, they should have de-aged the robot. De-bruised the Joe Pesci robot. Maybe they'll go back and like re-release it. Can we return to Bad Impression Corner for a second? Please. All right. So between these three movies, I want to ask you. What is your favorite reading of another character's name? Your options are A, Booby Kennedy. B, <laughs> Charlie M, you motherfucker. Or C, Karen. <laughs> I do like Karen, I think, the best. Ray Liotta just makes a meal out of Karen. Karen, why would you do that? <laughs> it's so good but i really like i love the going back to the grapefruit head in the vice scene 
where he just becomes infuriated that this man whose eyes popped out of his head would defend Charlie M of all people, whoever that is. Yeah, you get your fucking eyeball popped out for Charlie M. Oh my god. Um, my father texted later today to remind me. You've got to remember that Vegas was the only place you could legally gamble in the Western Hemisphere at this time, explaining the sort of singularity of sure. its place in the culture. Do we want to hear from Dig Dug? Yeah, and then we'll come back and rate this this bad boy. Here's my dad talking about Casino. For guys like me, Las Vegas washes away your sins. It's like a morality car wash. It does for us what Lourdes does for humpbacks and cripples. Dad, you were a craps dealer in Las Vegas in 1978. So here comes here comes your uh, your casino era Vegas true false quiz. Okay, I'll start with an, right. I'll start with an easy one. In the casino, the cardinal rule is to keep them playing, to keep them coming back. The longer they play, the more they lose. In the end, we get it all. True. <laughs> Any more need to be said about that? <laughs> well. There used to be a conversation that they actually pumped oxygen into the ventilation system when they were losing to keep them awake and playing. Okay, true or false, as portrayed in the movie Casino, the valets, greasing the valets, was the key to running any good hustle in the casino. Without a doubt. Why is that? Valet guys just knew everybody, so Mm -hmm. that's... uh, I, I just know those were highly sought-after jobs in the, in that uh, time period. It's one of the best jobs you could get in Las Vegas was a ballet. Interesting. Okay. A related question. This comes from an Ace Rothstein quote. Every fucking yokel out here in cowboy boots is a county commissioner or related to a county commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> true, or, true or false, uh, I don't, maybe I don't really know enough about the local politics back then. I have to admit, I did not. I followed the news because it was highly entertaining with uh, uh, lots of uh, criminal activity that went on, but I really didn't follow the politics very much. True or false, casino bosses regularly dressed, as Robert De Niro does in this movie, with the color palette of Easter eggs. I, well, I never saw Jackie go and wear that color. Okay. But, uh, high style was clearly the thing in, in uh, Las Vegas in the 70s. So the more dapper you could look, uh, the, the, the people worked really hard to, on their appearance because it gave the appearance of money. Yeah. So. You worked at the El Cortez, right? I did. And the Tangiers in Casino. Now, wait, that, that would be called the Fabulous El Cortez. Oh, sorry. <laughs> after they remodeled it, it became the Fabulous El okay. Cortez. Okay. I'm sorry. I shouldn't. I don't mean to uh, take any glitz off its front. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tangiers in Casino is supposed to be the Stardust. Is that right? Correct. And what was the reputation of the Stardust at the time? It was, first off, they, they became a. They were the first place to put together a gigantic sports book, and that put them on the map as far as uh, uh, sports gambling. Mm. And and it brought people it, it brought people into the building. The Stardust was always uh, highly uh, were all the stars entertained. It also had a, a connection with. Uh, the Frontier Hotel, which was out on the Strip, okay, and it and it had a, con- a connection to the the Fremont Hotel downtown. 
Right. And these, those three hotels got investigated on a regular basis for money laundering. Mm, okay. And, and that ended up, uh, they ended up getting, I don't remember the exact details, but there was some convictions. Uh, and I think it involved uh, the Cleveland uh, organization, maybe the Cleveland mob and okay. Kansas City people. So. True or false? You could be such an unsavory character, a la the Joe Pesci character in Casino, that you could become universally banned from casinos and have to hang out at the Idle Spurs trading post 60 miles from town. <laughs> I think they say, you, uh, you know, like, Nikki, you got your name put in a black book. You can't go to any casino in town. Is that a thing? That's absolutely, without a doubt, that was a thing. Is you were, if you got put in that black book and there were many people that uh, got put into it and uh, some mob guys, where that really became a popular thing was with card cheats, slot machine cheats, things like that. So the casino takes place from 73 to 79. Uh, would you have seen... I mean, you see it in all like a bunch. Of, you see it in Goodfellas too. But is that the window where like cocaine like cuts down probably half the town? Without a doubt, the late seventies, early eighties, it just uh, it came in in duffel bags, um, mm. and there, there, it was it was so prevalent. It was it was as common to walk into a restroom and seeing people do lines. Um, as it was just to watch them washing their hands and you just didn't think much about it It was like okay excuse me (laughs) excuse me i am going to wash my hands now (laughs) but uh yeah it was unfortunately it was a story of a lot lot of people could never get out of vegas because drugs were readily available and that's what they wanted and it uh it kind of trapped them there so uh last one pops in the old days this is another quote in the old days dealers knew your name what you drank what you played Today, it's like checking into an airport. If you order room service, you're lucky to get it by Thursday. That's true or false. I'm going to say false. Okay. That storyline would be far more true if you were a high roller. Sure. Uh, They knew when when you walked into the hotel. But when when I'm talking about a high roller, I'm talking about people who threw, who bet thousands and thousands of dollars. And that, uh, that wasn't the common person who was in Las Vegas. Well, Dad, I'm gonna break the Cardinal Rule of Vegas and let you walk away from the table. But thank you for your uh, thank you for your time and your expertise. Well, well, thank you for your kindness, and I'll probably come back and play again. Oh, good. I, then it worked. Yeah. <laughs> good deal. All right. There is a house in New Orleans. Be that as it may. I think the casino is also a bad bad. Really? You don't I think, think so. if you watch this movie by itself. Didn't didn't you previously think Casino is pretty good? I previously did believe it was pretty good and on this watch it's it just seems like a collection of parts. Joe Pesci's doing the Goodfellas thing. De Niro is basically doing the Goodfellas thing. That's not true at all. The script and the camera is basically doing the same thing from Goodfellas. Do you think you would think that that was annoying if you watched it in another context? Because I'm going to go bad good. I think it is a good movie. Interesting. I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. 
Okay. I, I tried to watch it sort of on its own, and it didn't. You didn't watch it on its own. Well, I mean, I like didn't just watch them back to back. I, I gave it a certain reverence. What, like 12 hours? That's right. I think it's a little embarrassing, perhaps, that Gimme Shelter plays again and then twice oh in God. Casino. I was just upset that there wasn't a Gimme Shelter breakdown in The Irishman. Only in the still of the night. Because then the the genre here could be crime movies directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci, featuring Gimme Shelter montages. Gimme Shelter's in The Departed, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is like a Chris Ryan bit. But this idea that like Scorsese hires the band's Robbie Robertson for every movie to be like, you're the music supervisor, like find me the perfect mo- perfect song to suit this scene. And every time Robbie Robertson just like, ah, what about the most famous Rolling Stones song? And Marty's like, I love it. Let's do it. We've got a $159 million budget. Let's do whatever we want. Yeah. Maybe the license has not even run out. On maybe TV that's shelter. the reason he keeps going back to that well is that he got it like in perpetuity or something. I think I really I do think Casino is like a pretty good movie. Uh, it's nowhere close to Goodfellas as I think we're about to talk about. Um, I think yeah I think there are mistakes in like who gets to talk and if then if the narration were more character oriented, you would cut an hour out of this movie that you don't need. I also think the Sharon Stone character is a pretty problematic female lead. I don't think it has a lot of sympathy for her. No. Which is like kind of fucked up considering her position and then for lack of like a better, maybe more like character driven ending to this, ending to her story. It just becomes like, a, well, you know, broads, they're crazy. And it's like the, the movie doesn't think that, does it? It's what everybody's saying on screen, but we don't really have another other than her love for this, again, horrible, abusive character in Lester Diamond. Lester Diamond is such a good name. I was trying to come up with like, what is a name that evokes the same thing as Lester Diamond? I think like Weasel Money Fuck is about as close (laughs) as I could get. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. Why don't we get some speech from her perspective? We only get it from Rothstein, and his big thing about Ginger is you had to buy her love with money. She just loved money, and then she's just, like, fondling jewels. It's like, all right. So she's Scrooge McDuck, but with a cocaine problem? Right. Yeah, it's kind of weird, and especially considering that Karen, Lorraine Bracco, has such a great, like, part in Goodfellas. Such a good part of that movie. Because she has so much agency in it, which is almost... I was almost, like, pleasantly surprised watching these movies in reverse that... I think the most feminist read on the three of these, uh, Irishman just doesn't have any women in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Casino has a very problematic woman. And then Goodfellas is just such an interesting, yeah, really rich character. The Sharon Stone performance is very good, I think. Sure. No, Quite I'm not saying it's not yeah. that. I'm saying the way the movie frames this historical female person is troublesome. Yeah, she's just playing somebody who you know is going to fuck up in the worst ways for three hours, which I think is also a thing that is harder to take about Casino, which is that it's framed from the jump with the car bomb and as an utter tragedy, but because it's so loudly staged that way, it doesn't feel as tragic as Goodfellas. For sure. So yeah, I think Goodfellas, if we're moving to it now... 
Yes. I mean, it's it's no surprise that I think it's the the best of all these three, but I think it also like constructs itself in a way that is the the most coherent. So like as we discussed, the Irishman has that sort of three narrative approach. Casino has the exploding car, and this one has I think one of the best scenes in the whole movie and maybe in all three of these movies is three guys are riding in a car. Yep. And uh Ray Liotta's driving Robert De Niro playing Jimmy Conway is in the front uh, passenger seat and he's asleep. And Joe Pesci, Tommy DeVito is in the back and he's also asleep. And they start to hear this bumping and they're like, is it a flat tire? Is something wrong with the car? Is it the road? Are they lost? No, it's the body that they have in the trunk and it's still alive. Mm -hmm. And like, what a way to go into a movie. It's not like, oh, like, let me tell you how we got here. But it also is in a really smart way. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. I know I'd go from rags to riches. To me, being a gangster was better than being president of the United States. Never ride on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. It meant being somebody in the neighborhood that was full of nobodies. Hey, Mom, what do you think? You look like a gangster. By the time I grew up, there was 30 billion a year in cargo moving through Idlewild Airport, and believe me, we tried to steal every bit of it. You might know who we are, but we know who you are. You understand? Yeah. What kind of people are these? And then we, of course, go back to seeing like the young boy, Henry Hill, grow up uh, around all these tough guys, around all these wise guys, and how he gets into the system, starting out with just like parking cars for them. And they say, you do this and we will stop the letters from school that you're not going to anymore. Come to your parents' house and you get in trouble for that. So he, he asks a favor. It's his, it's his quid pro quo, if you will. And then he gets further and further into the workings of the the queen's underbelly, um, and encounters uh, an an upstart named uh, Jimmy Conway. Like I said, Robert De Niro and his buddy growing up is Joe Pesci's Tommy. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about a couple things where I mentioned earlier that sometimes I feel like the impression of. Scorsese's gangster, like modern gangster epics, based on the totality of Casino and Goodfellas together, actually clouds some of the things that are in Goodfellas. First of all, so uh, Robert Richardson, who's worked with Scorsese a bunch of times and also was the DP for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this year, he did Casino, which I think makes sense. It's just a much brighter, glitzier, sort of straightforward movie. One of the things I didn't remember about Goodfellas is that Michael Ballhaus, this movie is shot in a very like mysterious kind of lived in way from the red brake light on Leota's face the first time you see him it's so much more elusive and tactile i think for which sure is really and a cool. little like a little icky in time at times no, i'm not going to let you get away with saying that word anymore on the podcast no, but I think like the red light and like showing like the sweat on their faces and it's like hard to tell what has blood on it and doesn't. Yeah. Like they it feels like there's this thing that they like can't get off of them. Sure, a grime, a film. For sure. Yes. Another thing I super appreciated this time 
is the way that this movie is structured, the way that the mountain of Pelleggi detail is communicated and ordered in the movie to put the natural beats of a movie inside of a profile of gangster life is immaculate. I want to point this out. So whereas Casino sometimes comes to a dead screeching halt to be like, and now you're going to meet this person. Think about this. The first time you see Jimmy Conway be super scary when he's strangling Maury, and the first time that Henry answers the phone to go be really violent in front of Karen and beat up that guy is all hidden inside that Maury wig commercial. Like you seem, you never see the resets in the Goodfellas plot coming because you're always coming across them in these kind of naturalistic roundabout ways that the characters seem to. There's never a moment where Henry Hill's like, you know what women really like? A gangster. That's me. These are all the women, including Karen, that I met along the way. No, we get to Karen by way of a totally roundabout conversation where they're burning down the tiki bar for money, and Tommy's like, will you please double date me because this woman won't fuck me unless you come on double date with her friend. So it's all, all the normal plots, all the normal plot points are arrived at with such smoothness it's brilliant. yeah absolutely and i like that too to sort of have i mean you you don't always know this movie's good at sort of like having reaction shots to people's violence yeah. so i think a good one is the one you just pointed out where lorraine brocco sort of witnesses uh henry just beating the hell out of this guy who like tried to take advantage of her right and then cutting back to her being like i'm sorry ladies but uh, that turned me on uh-huh. And like having that sort of, you can see in her eyes, like it's not all horror. Like some of it's sort of like good. I'm glad he like killed this guy. Yeah. I think it's a really kind of stupid argument in the wake of uh, Scorsese's Marvel comments that people were like, well, you glorified violence is like watch these movies and watch how terrifying the violence is and how you get to watch people like the Karen character make mental concessions as they watch brutal violence. Right. It's not glorified. Or like when Ray Liotta first sees uh, Joe Pesci kill, it's not Billy Bats, it's the guy before. And he's like, oh, and like just his reaction to it, like, oh, it's this is my place. And like, what do we do with them? And maybe it is Billy Bats. But saying like, oh, is, isn't his crew going to be looking for him? Like just like putting together like the little pieces, but like just being horrified and like wondering why no one is more freaked out about like, or even when they kill Spider. Yeah. It's like, did you just kill that guy? Unbelievable. He's dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you're wise to point out, I think that watching people's eye lines is such an important part of this movie. If you think about how you get, you watch Henry watch the diamond on Tony Sirico's hand, the guy who plays Polly Walnuts in The Sopranos, at the very beginning when he like, you know, sticks his hand out of the car and you're like, you get to see this boy. You're not, it's not glamorizing it. You're watching people glamorize it in their own minds. And then you see, when we first see like Ray Liotta from the, the uh, pant leg cuffs upward, he is, it's such a trick of the movie, I think, like how beautiful he is in that moment. He's just a gorgeous human being. He's very, I mean, he looks very good in this movie. Uh, he's yeah. got some great outfits. There are some, like, hilarious, like, I think even Casino, like, go, it's too much. Like, even this one, it's just, like, funny to see, like, what they wear. Yeah. Like, moment to moment. And then it becomes a joke, too, about, like, when they start all dressing nicer and uh, Robert Jr. gets so upset because yeah. he's like, they're going to know we stole all this money. 
I don't know about the suits, but some of the short sleeved shirts that Leota wears, like I want those incredible. Now. I want them now. It's also let's talk about Lorraine Bracco, a really good movie about marriage. Oh, for sure. I love the when she's on top of him with the gun. Like that's such a great iconic scene where he's like, "Babe, babe, like give me the gun, give me the gun," and it's like. And she she knows and she, she tells you in the voiceover that she can't do it, uh, right? But there's still a tension there. It's like I I've I mean I've never been in that position with a with a loved one, thank God. But I've gotten mad at at partners in the past, and you can yeah. see, and especially I've never been in one where violent like this level of violence and uh, organized crime was involved. You can imagine it's it's pretty trying on the on the wives. On the one hand her personal honesty is great. One of the great moments in the Karen voiceover is uh, she knows that the cops come and hassle the wives of the mob guys when they're at home. And she talks about that one woman would spit on her own floor. I never understood that. Such a great detail yeah. about like her personal mentality toward all Better this. Better just and, to be polite and call the lawyer, she says. And the people she doesn't want to be too is just like, oh, I don't want to be, you know, you end up becoming everybody at the same time as everyone has a romantic idea about the person they don't want to be, everybody has this category of like, oh, I definitely don't want to be that person. And then like, maybe you end up frighteningly yeah. close to that. Well, it's interesting because she maybe becomes the most successful version of like the mob wife by attempting to not be any of these other women that she's encountering. And as she says, like in a totally insular way, like mm-hmm. they just they all vacation together. They all do the holidays together. Like there's no outsiders. They're only with each other. Right. But by the end, like she's the one who has the ingenuity to flush the cocaine down the toilet. Mm-hmm. Why did she do that, Karen? Karen. <laughs> yeah, it's not just her guilt though. I think it's also her innocence. Like when they hold each other uh on the floor after flushing the cocaine down the toilet like they are still in this shit together because he would have gone to jail right then and there um right. but at the same time she flushed their safety valve down the toilet um i i think she did the right thing they would have found it karen they would have never found it <laughs> <laughs> you don't think they would have looked in what the kitchen henry yeah one of the kitchens uh yeah no she did the right thing <laughs> she did can we talk about just the way this movie films food in such a great way. In any scene, really, that Paul Sorvino is in, somebody, either him or around him, is cooking absolutely wonderful-looking food. That's true. I thought that the the hot dogs broiled in beer in The Irishman was a kind of a great callback to Paul Sorvino with the razor blade on the garlic. But even this one, like, he's just cooking up some sausages and peppers when he tells Rayleigh, he gives him, what, $3,800 and just like, I can never speak to you again? Yeah. Like, that is so interesting. And you, like, see the smoke, you know, or, like, cooking that huge steak in that tiny little prison uh, commissary or whatever. That was hilarious. And, like, delicious looking. Or the lobsters and the fucking – or going through the kitchen of the Copacabana. Lots of good food stuff. So much good food stuff. It's so, I'll say it again, it's just so lived in. And I think a lot of that is uh, Pelleggi's detail gathering from the book. And then Scorsese has just never been so good at folding together um, incident, detail, and making it all into a an epic. It's so hard to do. I, I really do think, I mean, push back on me. 
I kind of don't like it when people say this is a perfect movie because what you're saying is that like it resonates with like your soul in a way that it made well not for anybody else but I kind of feel like Goodfellas is the perfect movie I definitely feel like it's one of the best movies of this space uh, any sort of Italian based crime family movie <laughs> Well, that includes like The Godfather and things like that. Like, I think this is the best of the bunch. Isn't part of what's so cool and interesting about this movie, though, is that it is told from the perspective of men who are beloved at the party, but know they can never be in the family that's hosting the party. Sure. Yeah, because they can't get made because they're not fully Italian. And in that way, it becomes such a, this throws back to a, observation you made earlier that i like but it's such a movie about they're trying to find meaning through work and the fruitlessness of that um when your work is really you know i mean this movie even has that monologue in it where when henry hill's doing the voiceover he talks about his dad and his dad like being bitter that he only makes like a crummy amount of money for like being a straight guy yeah and he was then even more annoyed that his son was making more money than he was Mm mm-hmm so it's it goes back to that sort of idea about how one makes a living and there's some sort of honor in doing it away like around the system. But this one also shows, I think, the biggest cracks in that like there's honor among thieves kind of thing. Because like by the end of it, like everyone's either dead or in prison or I mean, I guess the Irishman too. But in this one, it's it's it also seems like it's the real end of an. I guess all of them are about endings of eras, yeah. but this one feels the most like punctuation on, you know, the crime family movies leading up to this one. Mm-hmm. Got to say, best scene in this movie though is maybe top three. What's your favorite of these three? The him walking through the club with the introducing the people by their nicknames, uh, that shot, the Copacabana shot, or the people giving them money during the wedding. I like the first one at the bar. Um, yeah. Or maybe even not the money part of the wedding, but the part where Polly's taking her around meeting all the guys named Peter or Paul. Yep. <laughs> and all the wives named Marie. So good. So good. I really like, what's the guy's name? Is it Killer Mike? That's the guy from Run the Jewels. But in the original, <laughs> in the pan of like all the guys where you meet Johnny two times and, and whatever. I like the guy. So you get the papers, get the papers. Yeah, exactly. The really horrifying guy in the corner is like, and that was Killer Mike. And he's just like, I took care of that thing for you. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're going to talk about that thing. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And I think this one, unlike the other two, like isn't afraid to have 20 minutes of this movie be the helicopter sequence. The helicopter sequence is also surprisingly good and not at all like a kind of, you know, it doesn't have the dour triteness of like Jimmy Hoffa deserved to die because you watched him make mistakes for an hour. The helicopter scene's just a, a bad day. Absolutely. But it doesn't quite have the lead up of like them getting in that red car and like him flying out to Detroit. Like right. it's supposed to have that sort of 
nausea, uh, sort of car sickness to it, I think, as as this one has, where Definitely. he's like all loaded up on cocaine and like is smoking a cigarette in every single shot and is like making all this food, but like running these guns around and stuff. And this helicopter just like won't, it's like like a hangover, like just won't leave him alone. Sure. And but he cares as much about uh, getting the babysitter to the airport as he does about like the veal cutlets have to be done by 1030. <laughs> that fucking lucky hat i tell you so good i also love that um i did not remember how many songs are cued during the it's like seven songs there's it goes nilson jagger the who stones muddy waters harrison and then i think muddy waters again just Incredible. in the day in the car which is such a great um you know under the surface way of being like this is cocaine cinema you guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah eight rock songs in five minutes absolutely yeah and i think really the the epilogue of this one is pretty good too like the egg noodles and ketchup monologue is such a nice stamp at the end of this like the reason i didn't do this kind of straight living you guys was because it's fucking boring like i didn't want to live this way i wanted some action yeah is there anything in Goodfellas that you feel like does need like an extension or a mea culpa or like a closer look that you think is resonating in Irishman? I feel like maybe the only guilty feels and the really like only quote unquote problem with this movie is that, I mean, he ultimately takes the side of the gangster in it and doesn't like he gets away with it. Like, and he has his wife and his kids, mm-hmm. you know, Whereas the other people, like, it goes much worse. Um, And maybe that's why he keeps making this sort of movie is to give it that due sense of morality. But, I mean, that's what makes this movie subversive is that, like, they do get away in the end with the help of the government. (laughs) Like, I think that's what uh, precipitated the ending of The Irishman is that idea, like, no, guys, like, Maybe I wasn't clear enough in the postscript of Goodfellas, <laughs> but like he died alone and his kids hate him. And all he had were stories that maybe no one is listening to. And about people who were all dead. Yeah. That if they ever saw him again, would have killed him. Or, or that, yeah. Yeah. Goodfellas is phenomenal. It's a good good. Oh, for sure. It's a good good. I feel bad having given two Marty movies bad bats. Yeah. But- I'm Maybe little... he should just make better movies and stop criticizing those great Marvel ones. Oh my God. No, it doesn't actually believe that folks. No, for, for listeners, for frequent listeners of the show, you'll know that I have no time for Marvel movies. Right. But you also don't have a lot of time for posturing about their lack of artistic value. I just demand when people talk about movies that they be real. Oh, is that it? And I find that sometimes both sides of the aisle tend to not be real. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just hope I haven't insulted you on this episode. If I was Me? Gonna, yeah, if I was going to insult you, I would have told you to go home and get your fucking shine box. I yeah. love how hypothetical all the runway to the violence is. It's like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't mean anything by it. If I was going to insult you, I'd tell you <laughs> to go home and get your <laughs> fucking shine box. That's funny. <laughs> So I'm many... still pretty sad about uh, what's his name, Spider, uh, Michael Imperioli, 
Just getting absolutely cheesed. Absolutely cheesed. But that goes back to, like, this movie does not glorify violence. Tommy DeVito is a monster. Right. What? What? And then he doesn't, he, like, wants to have people be like, yeah, good thing you killed him. And nobody (laughs) does. But that's the thing, too. Like, I was watching this movie this week with that idea of, like, well, what do these characters want? And for him, I think, like, even if you unpack the, uh, what do I amuse you, uh, your funny guy scene, really the reason what he's actually poking at is that, like, saying he's funny, by telling these stories, Joe Pesci's character is trying to come off as, like, terrifying. Like, it's stories about not turning on his friends despite receiving torture and, like, spitting back at the cops. And everyone's laughing, and it's almost like you don't want him... He doesn't want people to laugh. Right. He wants them to be like, oh, like just be revere him. Yeah. And so the the nugget of truth behind that confrontation ultimately is the fact that like I'm not a funny guy. Like I'm a good fella. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a nice note to end on, though, Ballard. You said the title. <laughs> um, I thank you for talking about these Scorsese movies. Listen. If this category has taught us nothing, it's the two lessons in life. It's that you never rat on your friends and you keep your fucking mouth shut. But didn't we not do that? No. I mean, the whole podcast is based on us talking. Thanks to the Playlist Podcast Network for hosting us, as always. Thanks to Marty Scorsese for making movies forever. I mean this with utter sincerity, but I'll talk to you later, you motherfucker, you. (laughs) Very good.